Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 9. I have the passage for you on the insert as well. You notice uh, Pastor Aaron is assisting instead of Pastor Nathan. Pastor Nathan was helping with one of our sister churches whose pastor um, had a, a minor surgical procedure, but the doctor didn't want him to preach this week, so Nathan went to Parkwood's PCA and preaching there. And so we're grateful for Aaron's help. It's a blessing to have him here in our congregation. And it's also a blessing to report that uh, Jeremy Swigard passed his ordination exams yesterday, both in committee and on the floor of Presbytery. So we look forward to next Sunday night. An earlier service has said Saturday. I hope everyone was still asleep when I said this. But Sunday night, next Sunday night, will be his ordination service uh, here at normal service time. So we look forward to that and give praise to God for his um, grace to help uh, Jeremy through that process. Today we come to Acts 9. This is the immediate aftermath to the conversion of Saul on the road. He meets Jesus. He's been given his sight. And now we come up to this important epic. In just a few verses, we have several years covered by the text in front of us. And so we will look at that together. Now, I want to say, as a, as a rule of interpretation, when you're studying a narrative like the book of Acts, often, um, and I've probably done this myself, and there's nothing uh, wrong with this, but we will use the conversion of Paul until draw some lessons from the, the life of Paul and say, look at how God does this and this and this. But most of us have not had the experience of Paul in our conversion. Some have grown up in the church, and you've known the gospel your whole life. Definitely, at some point, clarity about Jesus as your Savior needs to happen, uh, but it won't happen the same way it happened in the life of Paul. That's the norm, actually. So we have to be cautious in looking at this story of Paul as just an example or, or even as a model for how conversion works. Remember, the story happens in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the outworking of Jesus' expansion of the kingdom by sending his spirit. One of the ways he does this is by the apostle of the, the, the office of the apostles, who are the fulfillment of the prophets. Now they have Jesus to interpret through the Old Testament, and then with the revelation God gives the apostles, Jesus the chief cornerstone, the foundations being laid for the way the church would go forward from this point, built on the foundation of the apostles. And Paul is a key apostle. So this story is about God providentially bringing Paul to a place of importance in the church. He'll write 13 books of the New Testament. He'll be a major player in the expansion of the church. He will then set the example for the elders and the shepherds of the church who will follow. So what we gain from this is a bit of the message he preached, which is the apostolic message, which we'll not be surprised to find out it's the same message of the scripture. He will have that message clearly displayed in his teaching. It'll tell us what happens to him personally through this, and then what God does in the church because of his work through the apostles. So at the end, what we're looking for is direction for us. What does it mean when God strengthens the leadership of the church through the apostles, and then by the apostles appointing elders and giving structure and carefulness in oversight and shepherds to the church, we can look at this and see what happens. In fact, it builds just to that very point when we come to the last verse we'll be studying. 
it was F.F. Bruce, the great New Testament scholar, who said no single event apart from the Christ event itself has proved so determinate for the course of Christian history as the conversion and commissioning of Paul. What Paul does propagates through those who are appointed to oversee the church after he and the rest of the apostles are gone. Here now as I read God's word, I will read Acts 9, starting at verse 19. This is right after he receives his sight from Ananias. And I'll read down to verse 31. This is God's inspired and inerrant word. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple, but Barnabas. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Father, we marvel at your works of providence that would call a man like Saul from being a wolf, a predator of the church, to being a shepherd, one who cared for the church and set an example for the shepherds to come. We are encouraged by your transforming work in him and the overall work of providence that would build the foundations for us today in the church. Please open the eyes of our hearts that we might understand your word and apply it to our lives. We need your Holy Spirit to grow in grace. So please fill us now that we might feast upon your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the story of Paul is inspiring as it is, and it shows Maybe a story many people can relate with if they had an an abrupt conversion out of one thing to another. It really shows us God's powerful hand to appoint this man Saul to apostleship to give us assurance that he would always uphold his church by providing it with leaders of an apostolic origin. I don't mean apostles today, but their ministry would be apostolic based on the apostolic message, which is the message of the fulfillment of the whole of Scripture through Christ. We have this clearly before us in the person of Saul. At the same time, it's worth looking at the particulars because it's an amazing story of God's providence. 
Uh, I referred to F.F. Bruce earlier. Here's what he said in addition. With astonishing suddenness, the persecutor of the church became the apostle of Jesus Christ. He was in mid-course as a zealot for the law, bent on checking a plague which threatened the life of Israel, when in his own words, he was apprehended by Christ Jesus and constrained to turn right round and become a champion of the cause which, up to that moment, he had been endeavoring to exterminate, dedicated henceforth to building up what he had been doing his best to demolish. The picture of Saul becoming Paul is an amazing one. It's a show of God's power. It's a show that no one, no one can confront God's will and fend it off when God is going to do his work. And using Saul like this is certainly an example. Many years later, many years later, in fact, one of the things we'll learn from this passage is how long God takes to prepare his servants. We see Saul preaching immediately when he becomes a Christian, but what we don't see immediately is it's 14 years from the time he comes to Christ on the road to Damascus to the time that he goes on his first missionary journeys as an apostle. Just a few verses, this huge span of time. And after some years, Paul, reflective, of course, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, writes to the Colossians something that was very personal to him. And he writes it to us as the people of God. In Colossians, Paul wrote, He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Many of the epistles reflect on our conversions or our transference from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, this supernatural work that God does. And the the study of the life of Paul really emphasizes how personal this transfer is. So when we come to the epistles and read it, he's writing from a place of personal experience, all guided by the Holy Spirit to be Scripture. But make no mistake, the Spirit of God uses what he has put the person through as part of what is expressed to us when we read God's Word. As we approach these verses in Acts, let's first remember the domain of darkness that Saul comes from to best appreciate what God is doing here. You remember the person of Saul before he came to know Christ, before he met Christ. We see a bit of it in the book of Acts. In chapter 7, after the stoning of Stephen, it says, They cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So Saul, who was even known then, was there watching the cloaks as people got loose so they could throw rocks to murder Stephen. And there was Saul watching their coats so no one would steal them so they could be fully limber and ready to kill Stephen. Then in chapter 8 of the book of Acts, Saul approved of his execution. The brutality of what he watched in the stoning, he approved of that execution. Devout men, it says in Acts 8, buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. He was not moved by their lamentations. He was not moved by the brutality of what he saw. He was not moved by Stephen's face showing like an angel. Instead, he was ravaging the church. That's the the word that's used for a predator. That's what a wolf does. And that's who he was. He was a wolf ravaging the church, entering house after house. This isn't just waiting for them to come out and then busting them. It's going into their houses and ravaging. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul wasn't just a rank-and-file enemy of God. He was a predator against the people of God and the people of Christ in particular. He thought he was actually 
on God's side when he was fighting against his Christ. In Acts chapter 9, the first two verses that we saw in the last sermon, but Saul, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked for letters to the synagogues, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He wanted to set a trap to go into the synagogues, wait for people who had been converted to Christianity, and he'd arrest them there. Bruce once again. When the chief priests and their associates launched their attack on the disciples, Saul came forward as their eager lieutenant. He was not hesitant to bring up his wicked past whenever he shared about his conversion. In fact, later in the book of Acts, when he's preaching, starting to be more public in his sermons, he's speaking to some, uh, a Jewish tribunal. Listen to how he describes himself before meeting Christ when he talks about his story. In Acts 22, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear with me, witness with me. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and to bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone about me. He's telling the story about who he was before he met Christ, and he was an awful person. He was a wicked, wicked persecutor of Christians. Later, when he's talking to a more secular audience, he's talking to Agrippa now, He said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. He was was not just an accomplice. He drove the process forward. He said to Agrippa, I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I think one of the reasons God uses Saul of Tarsus, converts him, makes him an apostle, is to remind us all perpetually that any work of grace must be all of God. So the foundation of the church, built on the prophets and the apostles, the cornerstone being Christ, it has to be about magnifying Christ because the apostles themselves came from lives that are no different than ours. Saul's, though, was far worse, far more ravenous against Christianity. And God takes Saul in his providence and makes him a leader in the church, the one who appoints the original shepherds of the church in this first century. Later, several years later, when he starts to write his letters, he writes probably to the Galatians first, and he says in Galatians 1, "'For you've heard of my former life in Jerusalem.'" how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. His recollection of his own experience consistently points people to God and his saving power. It points it away from him and to the God who does the saving. This is important in apostleship, and it's important in church leadership going forward. This would be the model for the elders of the church that the apostles set, and primary among them would be Paul and his life and his example. He refers to himself in Philippians as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. In 1 Corinthians, for I am the least of the apostles. Why does he say he's the least of the apostles? It's not just a statement of humility. He really felt this, and he felt this for this reason. He said, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. 
The story of Saul becoming Paul is a story of God against all reasonable, normal ways of doing things or picking people, picks Saul, converts him, changes him, transforms him, and through him, founds the church going forward. Now let's look at the text before us and see his life after knowing Christ, at least the beginning of his life as a believer now and as an apostle in training. Verse 19, what is the first thing Saul does after he regains his sight? And it's important. In taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately upon becoming a Christian, Saul stays in the company of other disciples. The lights go on. The scales come off. Now he recognizes what he had been persecuting. He recognizes that Jesus is true. He knew very carefully what he was doing in his persecution. Jesus was not raised again. Therefore, he could not be the Messiah. It's blasphemy for these people to say he is the Messiah. He was crucified. Anyone crucified is cursed. And we don't have a cursed Messiah. But he met the risen Christ. Now it's all different. He knows it's true. Where does he go? He can't go back to his colleagues back in Jerusalem. His family there in Tarsus probably thought he was crazy. All he has are the people that would understand him in his heart. They would understand him at the core of their beings because they knew what their life was like. Their life was now centered around Christ. So he stays with the disciples, Christians that he just met. This is a recurring theme, though, for Saul, who becomes Paul. He consistently tells other Christians, you've got to be around other believers, You have to be strengthened by your fellowship with other believers. God gives his church collectively spiritual gifts that we all need to grow. He gives, this is the place where the word is preached and taught and proclaimed in a primary way. Where the sacraments are celebrated, where we pray together, where we have this fellowship together. And this is like eating gives us strength. So being in fellowship with other believers gives us strength. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. What's the result of this time with the believers? Verse 20, look what he does. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. Now you have to picture this. This is the the man who just uh, was going after those who were saying that Christ was the Son of God and the the Messiah. Now he has met the Messiah. What else can he do? I just saw Jesus alive. He talked to me. I've got to go tell you I was wrong. And this is the first component of apostolic, the apostolic message. Jesus is the Son of God. That's the same as saying he is God. That's the highest of all prophets. It means that what he speaks is truth and we must listen to what he says. So that is, that is a huge about face on what he had been teaching and saying. He goes back and says, Jesus, he is the Son of God. In verse 21, we can understand the response. All who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all those who called upon this name? And he, has he not come here for the purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? They were rightfully wondering what was happening. The company of believers, it was important for him to be with them at this moment. Now notice, he does not take off in his apostolic ministry right after he becomes a believer. But he is able to share Christ immediately. And I want to say that carefully. Some of what we'll see here is for particular ministry, especially leadership ministry, as we see it in the life of Saul here, who becomes Paul, even in the disciples, the years they spent with Jesus. That process takes time, and it should take time. People have to be evaluated. Uh, People who are shepherds or elders or pastors should be evaluated over time by the body of believers to recognize. But as soon as you become a believer, you could tell other people how you became a believer. 
You don't have to wait for that. There's no, you don't have to take a course of study beyond knowing that you're a sinner and you must, lay hold, you must trust in Jesus to be saved. You can tell people the thing that saved you, you can tell other people about it immediately. But the process for leadership is one that takes longer. We see both of these in the example of Saul. Fellowship, a recurrent theme. Verse 26, skip down there for a moment. This is after he had left Damascus. He spends three years... Three years he spends there. We'll come to that in a moment once again. But three years he spends in Damascus after he comes to Christ. And then finally, after he's kind of run out because of a plot to kill him, he goes down to Jerusalem. And there he meets Peter. We find that out later. But notice what he does in verse 26 right as soon as he gets there. When he come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. That's the descriptor for those who are followers of Christ. He seeks the fellowship of other believers. Uh, These believers would have only heard of him. The last time they would have seen him in Jerusalem, he would have been trying to kill them. He attempted to join the disciples, verse 26, and again, the response, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. The, the, The congregation is just using good common sense. They're discerning, and he's trying to find entrance into that community. As a side note, we all need friends. We all need people to advocate for us, informally and formally, and we see that in the life of Saul. Remember, Ananias was told by God to go pray for Saul, lay hands on him so he would see again. Saul needed that friend because he had just met the Christ. None of his old friends would be his friends any longer. Who would be his friend? And Ananias is that friend. Now he comes to Jerusalem. He tries to enter the body of believers. They don't know him. And God sends Barnabas. This begins a lifelong ministry relationship, a brotherhood, one of the strongest and, strongest and most important in the history of the church. Verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. As a result of knowing Christ... Saul had an immediate connection with Christians. He knew this because knowing Christ changed the center of his life. Before, he was pursuing self and his own promotion. Now it was all about Christ, and his world was confused. He looked at everything differently now. The the pursuits of the world seemed pretty futile. They seemed pretty lame. They seemed pretty fleeting, kind of hopeless, a bit depressing. Who could understand me? He could only go to other Christians who would know how All things are for the glory of God, where before he wasn't thinking this way. Even as religious zealots, it was really about their own status in that religious religious political culture. It wasn't so much about God's glory, it's about their rank in a certain culture, even if religion was on the name of it. Now he knew Christ, and that was all they cared about. Christ in him, the hope of glory. I want other people to know, who do I go to? He goes to believers. And the believers rightfully ask some questions. Aren't you Saul? And they probe, and, they, and Barnabas comes, and he gives endorsement. I was thinking of our process. I mentioned Jeremy in his ordination process. I like the process we have in our denomination. Um, it basically works when a, a young man believes he's called to gospel ministry. Um, he comes under care of the presbytery that this church is part of. That's, 
a process where they come forward, and Phil Taylor did this at this Presbytery meeting. He comes with basically a letter of endorsement from the elders of the church who have seen him. Uh, you could have endorsements from members and so forth. They have to have endorsements because the Presbytery doesn't know him that well personally. They know him a bit, but not that well. And so with letters from people who have been observing him, they then receive him under care. Then he goes through a process to be licensed. Can he, does he know the Word of God? Does he know the doctrine of the Scriptures? Does he understand how the church is ordered? Then you become licensed. That means you're able now to bring the word of God to the people of God within the bounds of our presbytery. And at that juncture, you get another endorsement from people who know you and say he's been doing this, working at this, had opportunity to do this. Then after that, you come back for ordination, which is how well does this brother understand the history of God's church? How well does he understand the sacraments that he will be given watch care over along with the elders to be sure the church is partaking of them, distributing them, and making sure that the gospel is clearly preached and they're ordained? It's a process, and along the way, there's constant attestation from people who observe. Here we have Saul needing a word of attestation from Barnabas, and Barnabas gives him that so that he is able to to be received into the fellowship because reception into the fellowship is so important. We need fellowship with others who do not believe this world is all there is to experience. We need fellowship with those who know the truth about salvation and eternal life. We won't feel at home until we find others who recognize that. We're not only to stay here only, I don't mean that, but we have to have this regular touch point, this koinonia together with others who know this life is not all there is. What do we see also happen in the life of Saul as he starts to grow? He experiences from this point an ongoing spiritual growth, and it's a patient, slow process. Verse 22, Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus. Verse 22 is different from verse 19. Verse 19, he was hungry because he hadn't eaten in a few days. He took food and was strengthened. Verse 22 is talking about his spiritual strengthening that's happened. Even in a short time with the disciples, all his knowledge of the Old Testament, now filling in all the ways Jesus actually is the fulfillment of it, he starts to grow in his spiritual strength. All of this was just confounding to the Jews because he was so different before. It's a beautiful thing to watch growth in, in all of you. All of you become believers. And some, maybe you're sitting here right now and you don't feel like you're growing because something you're going through is terrible and you feel like you've gone backwards. That's the feeling we have, but the reality is even that trial is part of the move forward that God's doing in your life to depend on you more. It doesn't always look outwardly like we're growing the way, the way you would think you would measure growth. But internally, as you grow more dependent upon God, that's actually growth. And it's something we see in Saul's life. Remember, the angel told Ananias, I'm going to teach him the things he must suffer for him. And that's true for all of us in various ways in different ratios, based on what God gives us to be able to handle. He wants us to depend on him. It's also a beautiful thing to see in the life of those who are leading in the church as they start to grow with opportunities. I just mentioned Phil being coming under care, Jeremy, who got, just got ordained. Watching these brothers, I'm actually at the stage, I can't believe it, but some of you older than me, so don't laugh. I can't believe I'm at the stage where I feel like the older pastor now, and I'm looking at these younger guys, and I'm thinking... I'm only a few years off. Like, I could possibly be that person's father right now. Oh, but anyways, that's where I'm at. And it's a joy, though, to watch people start that process of growth and development. And to, and to see Aaron this last week had got called into very difficult circumstances, and to watch his growth over the last couple of years. 
But you notice what I'm saying? The last couple years, months, years. These things take a long time. And God knows what to expose us to. Sometimes we're impatient. This is true for everybody. The vocation God's called you to, I want to be this or that tomorrow. Or I, maybe you're called into ministry. I, I want to go, I want to skip over this. I don't need to go to seminary, do this, or do that. The process takes time, and God doesn't need you as much as you think he does. He, he's not worried if you don't get on the field right away or don't get that particular job. That does not concern him. In fact, he might on purpose be stretching it out for you so you depend more on him and not your own abilities. And we see this played out in the life of Saul. Here's a man who was ready to go, you'd think. But instead, it's a 14-year period. You know, later um, when he's writing to the Ephesians, think of it through the lens that I've just kind of painted a bit. He's talking about the importance of spiritual growth and how that's what he wants to see in the life of those that he ministers to. He knew it because he experienced it. In Ephesians 3, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The words he uses, these are rooted and grounded. These are words that take time. They, if they're not rooted, they fall over quick. Patience with spiritual growth is necessary. Verse 22, Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. I said earlier that one of the apostolic elements of the message that he preached, Jesus is the Son of God. Here's the other one, that Jesus is the Christ. This is the essence of the church's mission, really. Jesus is the Son of God, the truth. We go to him for, for clarity, and he is the Christ, the Messiah, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So Jesus and his word, the truth, and that word proclaims that he's the Christ, that he's the way to heaven. He's the way we can be made right with God to trust in him. It's the same message of the whole of the Bible. And Paul immediately starts to see that and preach that, and then it becomes the, those are the two anchor points for the rest of his apostolic ministry, and it should be the anchor points for the ministry of the church. And where this informs us is that the people of the church should hold the leadership of the church accountable to those pillars. Uh, You should want this church to have that kind of leadership that is apostolically rooted. There's so many things to get involved with, but let's be apostolically rooted that Jesus is the Son of God and he's the Christ. And Paul gives us this example. That's what he goes forward doing. He doesn't solve all the world's problems, all the injustices, all the difficulties. He can't. But he can bring the world the gospel. And that's what it needs, and that's what the church must do at any cost. And we don't have any excuse to say um, that the circumstances are so tough we can't do it. Read the litany of stuff that Saul went through on his way to becoming Paul, and then after being Paul. He would have gotten killed if it weren't for the brethren consistently bailing him out. We'll see that. Notice something that it says in the passage that bolsters this idea. When many days had passed, verse 23, the Jews plotted to kill him. When many days had passed. Now, we only know how long this is because when he writes to the Galatians, he says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem. He's talking about right after he was, came to Christ. Nor did I go to Jerusalem 
to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. So go back to our passage, verse 23. When many days had passed, that's three years. So this is an interesting tidbit. He goes, the apostle of the, or the Pharisee of the law went to Arabia, which is where Sinai is, where the law was given, to get away in retreat. And over a three-year period, he was in Arabia and Damascus before he ever went to Jerusalem. So the Pharisee of the law went to the place of Sinai where he was commissioned to be the apostle of God's grace. And he comes back ready after three years. Some people, some scholars say maybe it was the three years that the other disciples had with Jesus that Paul did not have. He was getting it there through the revelations that were special from Christ and his preparation, his reinterpretation of his scholarship, the Old Testament now through the lens of Christ. Whatever the case, three years later, then he goes finally to Jerusalem. But notice what happens when he goes to Jerusalem. Look down at verse 30. When the brothers learned this, when they found out that there was another plot to kill him, the Hellenists this time, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the same guy that drove the Christians out of Jerusalem comes back to Jerusalem, and he gets driven out of Jerusalem. He's one of them now. And he goes away, and we know through, the, through when the books were written, when the missionary journey started, 10 years he goes away from Jerusalem. He's in Antioch. He still has contact with disciples, but we hear nothing of what really happens, not in any mission sense yet. He's teaching, no doubt, where he is. He's learning, but it's 14 years from the time he comes to Christ and from the time that we come to the passage in Acts 11. Acts 11 is when we come back to Saul. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So we're in chapter 9. It's not till the end of chapter 11 that we see Saul again. And then at the end of chapter 11, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. They were having a famine. And they did so sending it to the elders and by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So now, 14 years later, Saul on his first journey to go bring the relief that was taken up to bring it to Judea. Acts devotes 16 verses to 14 years of Saul's life in chapters 9, 11, and 12. Then starting in chapter 13, we have the full apostolic ministry of the Apostle Paul. Spiritual growth takes time. God's providence works in perfect wisdom. Spiritual preparation for training in ministry especially takes time. Elder is a name given to the spiritual leaders in the church because the idea is that they're older by the time they're ready to partake or lead in that way. It just takes time for this growth to happen, and God is not pressed by it. Notice finally something in the text that comes out of Saul's example to primarily, I believe, to the leaders of the church, but all Christians can gain from it. He was a fearless witness for Christ. From the time he transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, he was willing to die for his new faith. He recognized what it was worth. He saw the risen Christ. He knew he was safe in Christ. His life was hidden in Christ and God. So immediately he preached in the synagogues. He grew in strength. He confounded the Jews. He was not nervous. Maybe he was nervous. He didn't let on to it. He just kept preaching and teaching 
and they plotted to kill him, and he kept preaching and teaching. They, his, the disciples led him out of the, a hole in the wall, literally to get him out in the cover of night so that he would not be killed. Then he gets to Jerusalem, and they send him off to Tarsus. He's fearless. He's not the one saying, I better find a way to get out of here. They're saying, we got to get you out of here. It reminds me of what happened a few months back when I was in the seminar. I may have told you this, but it still amazes me. There was a Nigerian church leader in my seminar whose village was attacked in the middle of our seminar meeting. He's in Kansas City. His church is in Nigeria. They were sending him off because it was a lofty thing for him to get more education and come back and educate the church in Nigeria. But 28 people were killed in his village, people he knew personally. And he wanted to go back immediately. And the professors gave him permission, go back if you need to. You're the shepherd of the church. And the leaders in the church said, don't come back. They will kill you. We don't... We need you. Don't come back. And by the will of the the church, he stayed there. His life was spared. He's been back there since, but who knows how long, how many days he has. He was fearless. He was not afraid to die if he had to. Neither was Saul. And in these instances, the brethren kept him safe. When the church walks in fearless witness, led by its leaders this way, God gives a great gift. Maybe verse 31 is the most important for this morning. Look at verse 31. This is the the effect of what God had done before them through Saul becoming Paul. Not yet Paul, but still Saul. We know him as Paul. This, them witnessing what God was doing, brings us to verse 31. So, in light of this, this transformation you see in Saul you see the, the, the fearless, bold witness for Christ. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplied. This is no longer the church that ran away from Jerusalem when they were being persecuted. Now its leaders were standing firm saying, we're willing to die for this message of the gospel if we have to. I mean, they weren't being unwise about it, but they were willing to do it. When that fearlessness is on display by the leaders of the church, the apostles first, and then the elders should be this way too. When they're this way, then the people of the church, they realize this message really is true. It's strengthening normally weak people into something stronger because of Christ. It makes us not worry about what the world thinks, but rather we care more about what God thinks. So the world may crush us, but God is who we're concerned with. And we are at peace with each other because we know the essence of the gospel is what gives us unity. We're not fighting and squabbling over silly things, really. We're, we're too on mission to be worried about those things. We're in unity. We have peace together. And notice what it says, walking in the fear of the Lord. That's that, what that means is. It's a good thing. We care about what God thinks and not what the culture says. We don't care if they call us names. We don't care if they persecute us or want to take away our tax-exempt status or this or that or whatever. We don't care because we fear the Lord. And that comes from leaders who lead like that. Not when they're sniveling or when they succumb immediately to some pressure. And we see it immediately with Saul who had everything to lose, but he becomes the model. He's the model because he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. And he doesn't just say it to the elders of the church. He says it to everybody. Peace in the church. There was a unity that had come through the boldness of the message that was displayed. The church was built up, it says in verse 31. It was strengthened even though it was oppressed from outside. The, the, the people of the church were walking in the fear of the Lord. They cared more about God's opinion than the world's. And in all of this, the Spirit of God gave a comfort, gave a, a deep-seated 
recognition that God is in control and we're okay. And what happened? It multiplied. God actually grew the church in this instance. It's not always how it happens. But in this instance, he grew the church as people looked at it and saw how different it was. The strengthening of Saul is the story of God strengthening his church and founding his church some years later. Saul wrote to a church leader in Ephesus. Several of the books that are in the New Testament from Saul, who became Paul, are letters to pastors and churches. One is Timothy. It's one of his most famous. Timothy was a young, a younger than, he wasn't terribly young, but he was younger than, than Paul was. And he encouraged him while he's pastored with other elders in Ephesus. And he said, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead. And by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Let's pray. Father, the story of Saul becoming Paul is a story on one level of a wolf becoming a shepherd, but on another level, it's the story of how you founded your church on the foundation of the apostles as the example to elders in the church today for watch care over your church. Lord, give our leaders boldness and fearlessness so that your church may be unified and at peace and live in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Give faithfulness to pastors and teachers so that your people may be built up. Give us conviction and courage about your word so that we may walk in a way that is more concerned with what you think than what this culture thinks. And Lord, if it be your will, may you, through your church, make impact in this culture that would see a great many come to you. Lord, give us comfort that only your spirit can give under the ministry of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.